Abrams, he does his best to balance out their shittiness by stringing along lost composer Michael Giacchino and future Star Wars The Force Awakens cinematographer Dan Mindell. And that's kind of the defining feature of Mission Impossible 3, that it's an Abrams movie through and through, because you have the cold opens, you have the mystery box MacGuffins, you have the turncoats in the 11th hour, but perhaps the best part of this film is when the director tries something new. And in this case, it's the first and only time he ever worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman, whose every moment on the screen magnetizes your eyes to the TV. And so all in all, it's kind of a mixed bag of a film, but it's a, the necessary one that we needed to get the series to the entries that are to come in the future. This is this is the movie that proved that Mission Impossible could work even when nothing happening on screen really matters. You know, in this the, the story is literally meaningless. What matters is what are the actors doing? Does it look awesome? And, you know, is it fun watching them do these things? And it answers yes to all of those questions. So it doesn't matter that the villain is milk toast and you know, basically thin air. You know, it, it doesn't matter that this is just Tom Cruise running a lot and saving the world, you know, and showing you that you can save the world just by running really fast and, you know, getting the shit kicked out of you along the way, but still finding a way to, you know, stop San Francisco from being reduced to radioactive ash. Welcome to Theater and Stream, a film podcast. I am Matt, and that is Chuck, and this is episode number nine. We've reached the middle portion of our retrospective on the Mission Impossible films. Today, we'll be looking at J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible 3 and Brad Bird's Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And I've got to say, it's quite the turning point for the series. And despite only being separated by about five years, we have two very different films on our hands. But that's coming up a bit later in the episode. First, we'll discuss the week's news, including a report from the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. We'll be talking some streaming releases in the watch list. And wrapping the show up, as always, will be the mentionable and our picks of the week. That's a lot to get to, so if you find yourself wanting to skip around in the episode, you're going to find timestamps in the description. Throw us a sub if you like what you see. Throw us a review if you like what you hear. And that's the business end of the show. But to get right into it, Chuck, I understand 
that we have an update to a story from last week. A very brief one. It's funny that they couldn't have just rolled all this out right away, but yeah, some some lead hacker found the website too soon, and we got a peek at uh, a preview of TV, a hint at what TV was, but now we can actually lay our eyes on it, and that is what our dual-screened monstrosity is, because the other feature that they're pushing with it is a partnership with Zoom, and if you can see, there's a notch on the top of the device, because this is that free TV that they're just going to give you because it's an always-on ad delivery platform. There's a sound bar, and then beneath that is another screen that will be always-on showing you advertising, game scores. There'll be integration because there's a camera on the top of it. This is that connect you know, you know, you know, Xbox Connect sort of style thing where it will always be scanning the room. It will be, you know, looking into a lot of different things about who is watching it and when. It will know. You can't just cover it up. Like, I'm sure that certain features will be locked out if it cannot detect the living room that you've given them a profile for. Because I am being a uh, intrepid... Uh, first adopter. I tried to get a reservation for one of the 500,000 first run of these that they're going to be putting out there. And it asked me all sorts of questions like, what size is your TV? Do you have it mounted or is it like on something? You're like, how is it angled? How much other furniture do you have in the room? How many people you typically are watching it? How often is it used, you know, per week? Well, all those kinds of question so i i gave them lies of course and we'll just see if they pick me to get one or if i signed up soon enough because how how likely is it that i'll actually get one of these do you think i think it's pretty likely because from what i understand uh they got about a hundred thousand reservations in the first three days that it was available oh, so, so I, if, i'm one of those people okay you, you probably are yeah you probably will if if you want to go through with it. I mean, the, my big question with this is, you know, they still haven't revealed how the, you know, how how exactly do you get a TV with about $1,000 worth of components into your living room for the price of free? And I think the, the answer to that question is they probably are going to have, when they actually get to the point where they're ready to send you the TV, they're going to say, hey, Go ahead and put a credit card down, and then that way, yep. if uh, if anything happens to it, if if you go and sell it at a pawn shop, or if it gets stolen, or if you break it, you know we have that on file, so we can just immediately charge you because because this is an always always on thing, because this is an internet connected device, they'll know all that stuff. You know, they'll know if the TV is not connected any longer because it's always on, and so. I just have a feeling that there there's like going to be a laundry list of stuff you have to abide by. And if you, you know, even falter a bit, they're going to just boom, charge you a thousand bucks. And suddenly that TV is yours to keep forever. Yeah. And because mm -hmm. like that, that, and that's kind of where I, I probably will be backing out, honestly, because I was mm -hmm. mostly just doing this for curiosity's sake, if nothing else. Because when I first looked at the actual hardware, my first thought was, can I mod that so that that second screen can just be another, like, monitor? You know, like, because this is neat hardware. 
I, I'm not unopposed to the, to the design. I think it could be really useful, in fact. But yeah, by all accounts, yeah. this is a actually like a decently a TV of decent quality as far as the you know the technology in it and the components and the fact that it's you know 4K HDR and um, it has a you know that built-in sound bar that has uh, five speakers in it. So. Yeah, this is actually a pretty decent TV, um, or would otherwise be a, a decent TV. But this whole product, as I, the more I think about it, it was conceived during the pandemic. That's when the eureka moment happened. And they just figured that, that oh yeah, next time we have another one of these excuses never to leave our living rooms or our bedrooms again, we can have these available for people. We'll just give it to them. And then, ad yeah. and then advertisers will pay out the nose to deliver ads directly to people's living rooms. It's kind of genius. Hey, yeah. November, I mean, you're being a little loud. You're, I guess, um, you know, I, I'm not interested in this in any way, shape, or form. And <laughs> I, I just feel as if, you know, whenever you're put into the situation where you're trading privacy for convenience, yeah. uh, you really need to take, like, a second look at that situation because that's kind of what's happening here. And I really feel as if, they're they're really gearing this towards like the poorest of the poor people in that um you know this is basically the rent-a-center model you know when back back in the day when people would go to rent-a-center because they couldn't afford a they couldn't afford to put down you know even two or three hundred bucks for a tv to own you'd go into rent-a-center and pay you know like 20 bucks 20 or 30 bucks a month and so I don't know. It, it seems a little predatory in that way also where, oh, yeah. you know, they're clearly targeting like the poorest of the poor people with this. And um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just and then just on principle. I mean, we all know my personal thoughts on having an unsullied viewing experience. Yeah. And so I just I cannot get on board with this by, you know, having so many distractions and, you know, modern day society's constant need to multitask. And I, I just hate it all. I, I hate everything about this. Yeah. Like, like if this thing, if you if you could decide what was on that bottom screen yourself, like there was no one curating it whatsoever, then mm -hmm. I would I would want to buy one of these if I was like into watching football. Like if you wanted to do yes. NFL Red Zone. And have like a feed of all the other games going on on the bottom and then a focused one on top. I, I, don't, I could see like bars or, you know, like just man caves buying this kind of product, like this kind of technology. But yet uh, untether it from this predatory, you know, service model, you know, this advertising based service model and just like sell it to me like a, a TV with extra features and I would buy it in a heartbeat, probably. But yeah, this is this is not the way. This is the wrong wrong way to go about things, unless you're, you know, a really skeezy entrepreneur. But speaking of skeezy entrepreneurs, they're winning a little bit. I don't know. It's hard to say who is bleeding more in the writer strike this week, in week three. But there's some headlines coming, you know. And the the one that you know hit me the the most is that they are just saying canceled. They're using the C word yet again with Family Guy and American Dad. So we're not going to be getting, you know, cutting edge up to the, the moment episodes from these shows any longer. And we might, and who knows if they're going to be coming back or where they'll be coming back to once it's all said and done. Because 
McFarlane can kind of just like take his ball and take it wherever he wants to a degree, can't he? Oh yeah, for sure. Especially with these shows. I mean, he has other stuff like the Orville that's, you know, not so popular, but yeah, like this, this he could take anywhere. And I don't even know where, where does this, where do these shows live at these days? Is it TBS? Um, Family Guy still is a part of animation dom domination, but yeah, American, okay. but American Dad definitely moved networks completely. It's on, it, yeah, it, it moved to TBS because it was doing killer on their syndication there. So they were just like, okay, you're ours now, you know, because yeah, Fox got sick of supporting it. Yeah, this is a pretty big blow, I think, to to the cause, um, you know, almost almost as big of a blow as, you know, something like Stranger Things, because I think that was kind of the other sort of part of this one-two punch. And so we'll see kind of how, how this plays out. Yeah, because we also got the, the very sad news that we will not be having <laughs> the Emmys on June 17th. So, we, yeah, we might not have an Emmys at all. There's just going to be a big black line in the timeline of all the Emmys. It's like, no, no Emmys held this year. We didn't have an Emmys during World War II, and we didn't have one now either. You know, like, it's going to be one of those things. Mm -hmm. That's when the strike... Yeah, definitely, definitely, like, the, the least important bit of news from this week, but still worth mentioning. Um, but then probably the most interesting thing with the writer's strike this week is kind of how... Um, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, is also renewing their contract with the AM uh, PTP, and so they have author or the, they have authorized a vote um, that if they pass in the affirmative, they may go on strike. But really, what they're doing here is they are trying to get the most uh, bargaining power uh, okay. by doing this by saying we could go on strike if we want before they go into their negotiations with the AMPTP. And so we might be, you know, a month from now, we might be in a situation where both the Writers Guild of America and the Actors Guild of America are both striking. Yeah, because you'd have to imagine that, like, the directors are probably ex ex on the same side as the producers to a degree. They're so miscegenated so many directors are also card carrying pga members which i assume have something to do with the aaptp maybe i don't know what i'm talking about but the the actors you know walking out that is another extension of the talent arm they, that really matters they're the people who are on the posters and they're the people going on all the, the stupid fucking talk shows, you know, at late night and, and hosting Saturday Night Live. It's like you need them more than you need anybody to an extent because you're not selling anything. But how likely is it that they'll stick their asses out to? Like, I know that they're putting it out there, but like, what's more likely them siding with the writers or just voting to let them, you know, starve on their own? You know, I think... It, they're probably, I mean, as I said, I think they're just doing this mostly for bargaining power because if, you know, if they say, hey, hey, uh, we could go on strike, you know, this is a possibility, you know, it's all about just kind of uh, putting that message out there uh, so that they have the most leverage when it comes to bargaining. But I think that actors have have it a lot better than writers. They haven't quite been put into the same sort of um surf 
category as writers, the serfs of society, but um, I, I think it's probably just for show. We'll have to see because yeah, as this drags on, it just you know more and more things just get shut down, and you know, we're also seeing some strange things happening with Disney. And I know you probably could just attribute this to their subscriber collapse that's been happening. I think it was four million reported uh, cancellations from people not maintaining their free subscriptions or whatever. But that's yeah, that's just a lot of money not in Disney's pocket. And so are they just like taking the tax hit? You're trying to like get like a break here by taking things like Willow off of the platform. Like that that's six months old and already they're just like, no, we don't want it. Like who was who, like like what was the liability with keeping that when they spent so much money to make it in the first place? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean I I guess the, the unfortunate thing about streamers is that they uh, don't have to be upfront with their uh, viewer numbers like cable TV does. And so it, it sucks we can't get those because my guess is that the, the numbers for Willow were just absolutely like dog shit and they're just they just don't care. And so I think I think this probably has more to do with trying to get the tax breaks um, if, if I had to guess. So because one theory that I came across that I found compelling just because I'm, I know so little about what truly, you know, is in like a streamer contract between like a writer or like a, you know, a director or an actor for residuals on these things. Cause yeah, what is the economics of streaming? Like, like what is like, you, you have syndication for, you know, cable and broadcasting, but like if, like if something that I write is on the Disney plus platform, can my contract as a writer command that for the, like, as long as it's on there, I get X amount of dollars. Like, like how lucrative could these like royalty things be? Is this the, them just being like, yeah, we're cutting the fat even further. This is more just, we're taking more away from the writers to a degree by doing this. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, you know, that, that is a good line of thinking, I think, because from what I remember, I believe that, um, writers get like, it's, it's very small amount. It's like single digit, like bottom single digits, like one to 2% of the cut of syndicated shows. And in the, that WGA, um, list of demands that we showed on screen uh, a couple weeks ago, they want that number to be risen to i think it's five or six percent and then uh the amptp countered with like three percent so it's just like they're not on the same page at all we'll meet them halfway though you know (laughs) that marginal two percent so yeah we'll keep following this because the reality is hollywood is dying that's what we're seeing here we have the debt ceiling about to hit right around the same time as sag is going to be meeting so that that's also part of it but the the more important thing is like where is cinema truly living where's where's the where's the blood pumping and of course it is you know overseas in continental europe on the coast at Cannes, because the film festival's going down and it is all about johnny depp for some fucking reason (laughs) like i know he you know this is his big return his coming out party the man used to own a village in this country for crying out loud this he basically is french look at him like you, you're not an American if you truly if you look like that man is a Frenchman. He is amongst his people, but still controversial. Like, what's the deal with the director of this movie? Why is she such an edge lord? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the 
uh, the film that he's in is called Jean Du Barry, I think, and it's it tells I think it's the story of Louis the Fifteenth, and um, the presence of this movie has been so controversial at Cannes this year because you know even despite the fact that he won his court case, he you know he it's a, he's just a controversial presence to have because many people still think that you know he did all those horrible things to Amber Heard. And um, it doesn't help that the uh, director of this movie that he's in, and also co-star, uh, her name oh, is Ma really? Wen. Yeah. yeah, and she's also the co-star. She um, spit on a journalist because he wrote a, um, a basically a Me Too article about her ex-husband, Luke Besson. Yep. I got, so, a, I got an awesome picture of, yeah. of her and Luke Besson. I just want to throw this up here. Just for the lols. Look at that happy couple at the time. Oh, Look yeah. at Luke Besson. <laughs> what a a man. What a guy. Yeah. And he famously left her for uh, Mila jo- Jovovich. So <laughs> the child, um, basically. Yeah. I know she wasn't she was she seemed like she was still a child at the time. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's 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 been really weird because um you know, there was all that controversy and people were sort of talking more about that than they were the actual films for a while. But, you know, luckily, the this was such a like a wet fart of a movie to open Cannes Film Festival because, you know, the, the reviews coming out of the premiere were just kind of meh. And so luckily, we've we've since moved on from all of that. And now people are actually talking about the other stuff. Because this is a pretty solid year. This is a good lineup. As far as con goes, yeah the uh, the second one yeah that you have up here is called uh, this is the new Almodovar movie um, and it's a short film called Strange Way of Life which is sort of a um, gay cowboy short I guess is how people described it very much in the same vein of uh, Brokeback Mountain or Power of the Dog um, and people were pretty mixed on this though after it premiered. You know, some said that the 31-minute short, there just wasn't enough to it because of the the running time. Um, it stars Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal. They say that they have good chemistry. But um, at the end of the day, a lot of people just said this is basically an extended um, St. Laurent commercial, the, the, the fashion designer, because this movie was made in collaboration with their new, like, spring fashion line and so auteurs are always making these like low effort like quote-unquote felt like promotion films like this like yeah yeah, why basically why why act like this was actually a movie and then the first place i don't know i guess they probably they probably just handed him a bunch of money and you know and just said make whatever you want just make sure that your actors are wearing our clothes (laughs) and he was like i mean that's that's okay. often what happens with these type of things. Like when you see like commercials on TV for like um, Coco Chanel, like perfume commercials. And you're like, what the fuck was that? Because it's all just like this weird imagery and, you know, Natalie Portman walking through a field of flowers and then falling over. And, and like, it's just, it's very strange almost surreal imagery. And so I think this was sort of in that same vein. It, yeah, because this is what the what would the the thirty minute short is what would make up all of the cut up weird shit that would be in the commercial. 
that would run in between, you know, airings of The Godfather on AMC or some shit. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because, like, David Fincher and people like that. Even, like, Jonathan Glazer's done a lot of that, too. A majority of his career has been just making these really bizarre, like, tone poems for, you know, like, fashion and perfume and technology companies. Music it, videos. Music videos as well. Yeah, because those are, yeah, it's interesting. But, yeah, it kind of detracts from the prestige a little bit when you realize it's just a asking you to drink some Ovaltine. But then we also have another little bit of newsworthy things, because it wouldn't be can unless there was some kind of either muted or negative reaction to something. But they were very polite. They gave Harrison Ford his five-minute, you know, ovation. But the reality is the reviews coming out of this movie, like, not just, like, you know, like, scuttlebutt on the internet, Variety is actually running review or like an actual review about this movie that is rotten. And actually this movie is rotten right now after its premiere at Cannes, but dial of destiny might not be the movie that Kathleen Kennedy was hoping for, even though Bob Iger has been like trying desperately to make people believe that it's good. He's seen it like five times, but it's like after the, the second I would have given up on it. Like if I were him, but he, he just has to have this win. But this movie probably not not going to live up to the company's expectations, which is unfortunate because this thing sounds like it's maybe marginally better or even marginally worse than Crystal Skull, depending on who you talk to. Yeah, I, I saw a because they the weird thing is, is, you know, they were allowing full reviews to be published right away. And I think I saw a review with the, the sub headline that said, we don't know how good we had it with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And so, yeah, the, the can audience is notorious for walkouts and they're notorious for that. They have no problems booing at the screen. And they were a little more restrained for this Indiana Jones movie, luckily. But I heard that people in the audience could be heard uh, murmuring in French about how bored they were while <laughs> the movie was was going on. And so... Yeah, the, the the Indiana Jones reviews are, are not good coming out of the, the fest. Oh my god, sorry. I'm getting distracted by text messages. Yeah, which is it's the the other part of this, you know, is the the you know, like all of everything that the company has writing on it. But like isn't it just fucking sad that like we're making Harrison Ford do this? Like why couldn't it have like they have just left well enough alone? Like why like why are we pushing Phoebe Waller Bridge so fucking hard? Like I haven't seen a single thing she's in because anything I've seen her in, I instant my interest instantly dies. What is the appeal? Do you know? I I don't know. I guess I mean I thought I, I've I really haven't liked her in anything I've ever seen her in. I think she's a decent writer. I don't know why she made the jump from writer to actor, but her writing on um, Killing Eve especially in the earlier seasons was pretty decent and i i I like that show for the most part the last season was awful but um but yeah i i've really i haven't really liked her in anything i've ever seen her in and i really really hope that you know this they're not trying to set the groundwork for anything in the future they they probably should just let it die now i wish that harrison ford was as grumpy about indiana jones that he is about han solo because this would be a lot more fun but he he seems he seems weirdly like 
emotional about Indiana Jones in a way that he's not at all about Han Solo. Because he was resented Han Solo. Like, you know, yeah. like Indiana Jones was partially, you know, him trying to palate cleanse his you know career and how audiences perceived him. And it, I guess it worked. But yeah, the uh, James Mangold, he just he just couldn't deliver the goods, apparently. But then we have an, a lot of hype coming out of about this movie with Sean Penn called Black Flies, which is about emergency response workers in New York City. Is this like set during COVID specifically? Or is it just just in that neck of the woods? You know, slice of life with all the beauty and the bloodshed that goes along with it. I, I think that I think you got it right on the head. Um, I don't I don't believe it's set during COVID. I think it's just kind of a yeah slice of life type thing. Um, I've heard it compared to like Nightcrawler, the um, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, where it's just like this unflinching like portrait of what these guys actually like go through. And um, this is actually from the thing that got me interested is this is from uh, Gene Steven Savoie who is, have you ever seen the movie A Prayer Before Dawn? I have not. About the, okay. He, it's, it's a movie about a, um, an English um, convict who is uh, serving time in a Thai prison, and he gets oh, into this Muay fucking Thai. movie. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, it's, it's on a, my to watch list. Oh, uh, I need to see this. I forgot about it. Yeah, same, same director, and I really enjoyed that movie. That... And if if this movie is anything like that, I know that these reactions coming out of cans about this are 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 absolutely spot on because that movie was was pretty messed up. And so right on, um, fuck yeah, bro. Yeah, this is, and it's got um, one of the weird. The the last thing I'll say about it is one of the really strange things about it is Mike Tyson plays like the chief of the paramedic office or like the paramedic uh, station. So yeah, that's gonna be interesting did they like do we know did they leave the tat i think they have to probably cover that up just for copyright reasons at this point (laughs) oh my god that's wild but this isn't gonna this hasn't been seen yet it's gonna be premiering like it's right 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 now now. but yeah we finally are gonna get to see killers of the flower moon the the epic of epics the the swan song of uh, martin scorsese's career like it his rhetoric coming into this like in his interviews has been really like sad because like he's you know he's invoking something kurosawa said around the time that he got like a lifetime achievement award at the oscars the this comment he made about how like he's he's bummed out because at the end of his life he's finally realized what cinema could be and he's not going to be able to you know do anything with like that that crystallization and he's like i didn't understand it at the time but i get it now because there's so many things he wants to you know tell so many stories that have inspired him and this is this might be like the last significant movie he ever makes and you can just tell that the man put his all into it based on the the footage we've been seeing oh yeah 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 this was this the they just released this new trailer because of the premiere uh today and yeah, just great, great trailer. And I, I do hope that he has more in him, hopefully. What? But if this is if this is going to be his final film, I would be perfectly Hi. fine with that because 
this book is the book is so good and it's like a it's like ready-made it's like a ready-made epic like it, it it was all laid out for him like the the genius is already there and then it was just up to scorsese to basically add to it you know add his flavor to it and so yeah very much looking forward to this and yeah as you said it is premiering at, like literally right now it's being shown at as we speak uh this saturday morning um and so we should be seeing reviews probably within the next couple hours and i'm sure they're gonna be a little bit better than what we're seeing for indiana yeah. <laughs> really has piqued you know my attention here is we i didn't realize what zone of interest was going to be but this is about a like a German family living next to Auschwitz. Which, coming from Jonathan Glazer, this thing's probably going to be super intense and searing. And I am just so glad that that man is another movie. You know, especially after we did that retrospective on his three other films. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a decade since his last movie, Under the Skin. And yeah, at this point, it just feels like you know, you don't get stuff from this guy very often anymore. And this is sort of, this is a special occasion. And yeah, this this is apparently about a Nazi commandant who his family, him and his wife, build their dream house basically on the other side of the, the fence from Auschwitz. And, um, I've you know, this is the first, like, completely... Um, okay. the, com the first complete hit out of can like everybody who's seen it says it's amazing and I, I you know you, that's all you can hope for from glazer i mean he he doesn't miss and um yeah very excited to see what he does with this i think i think he's one of the you know few directors out there who could handle material like this in in a way that you know does doesn't come across as like too like preachy or too like saccharine i i think he's gonna do something interesting with it exactly because there's nothing more tired than a, a fucking holocaust movie let's be let's be real but if you're gonna find some way to explore like the psychology or humanity of you know like the the, the the average german in nazi germany and actually do it with a level of dignity and not not understanding but just like some true like a, an analytical sort of you know intent it's not just aren't these people evil isn't it banal i don't know there's got to be something more to it than just oh weren't the nazis like awful people there's there's something else that has to be there and i trust this man more than literally anybody else to do it at this point in time but is there really anything else that is exciting it's like coming out of it or is it just a lot is there just a lot of euro trash taking up the space <laughs> not not as of yet i mean this thing we we may i guess may or may not talk about it next week too because this thing still has about four more days left i believe um can does and so um yeah depending on what else is coming out um we may talk about it again but i suppose we should probably talk about what eventually wins the palm palm dior mm -hmm. and i think right now it's safe to say maybe that zone of interest is the front runner it's like he's it's yeah. they, it would be he'd be the filmmaker to crown you know just because he's you know so rarely you know you know putting himself out there for anyone to give him anything and he's also kind of inscrutable he doesn't do a lot of interviews from what i you no. know, recall but moving on to the watch list, I 
am kind of enjoying this trend where they're yeah it's they're just taking everything that was old and making it new again but there's but with dead ringers and now with fatal attraction i'm really digging the vibe it's working like these two shows are kind of nailing it but i really really like what fatal attraction did because yeah how do you take the, the the story from fatal attraction and stretch it out how do you like where's like where's like what is the other thing that you can tell and it's something that the original movie never really did from what i recall i don't really remember the ending i just remember the wife killing glenn close in the house and then credits rolling i'm not sure exactly where they leave those characters but what the show does is that it it also does if it, it does a time jump you you basically start out with the main character played by joshua jackson it, at his parole hearing because he had pled guilty to killing the woman he was having an affair with played by uh, lizzie kaplan who and the glenn close character and so there, there's two different you know timelines going on it's kind of true detective in that way or like just or like yellow jackets that's another you know, you're very you know, very obvious example but you, you have the story of the affair it's kind of like the affair even one could say he's a, an alum of that show and and those and that's the vibe because you, you you see the like what made the affair happen and then you also have this you know present day timeline where he's been released from prison and he's trying to revitalize his relationship with his daughter while also trying to exonerate himself for a murder he pled guilty to and had to admit to in order to get paroled you know like that was like contingent was that he fully accepted blame for the murder but then he's you know out and uh, there's a really you know outstanding you know supporting cast to this show as well i can't remember his name he was in blonde he was the 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 makeup the handler uh for yeah. I, I can't remember that actor's name but he's wonderful he's in this as like uh his like partner in crime and mentor in trying to solve the mystery of what you know actually happened but it's a pretty dang good show honestly way better than i thought it would be i rolled my eyes when i saw it on paramount plus initially but i'm here for it i recommend this so let me ask you this um you you would say that this is like a genuinely good show yes. like you wouldn't you wouldn't place it in like almost that guilty pleasure category like the show that i immediately think of when when i saw this was um hulu's uh the kate mara show uh a teacher yeah okay no, and, no, um, no. this is leagues leagues better than that okay. like uh, th there's like genuinely good writing the chemistry between jacks uh jackson and uh kaplan is like legitimate but when they dive into her psychology and you like you get like the episode that shows things from her perspective it, it's a lot like the show you and i would say like quality wise it's a it's better than that it's less soapy than that there's something a little more serious going on but it doesn't forget what it is which is a really soapy pulpy you know like bedroom meal movie like you know yeah this is the the date movie that makes you side eye your date you're kind of like gone girl or something <laughs> like that but paramount plus they've been killing it this week for us because we had this show and i finally got to fucking watch a little old ditty uh called dungeons and dragons 
I missed this in theaters, and I believe like you did as well, which is why we're talking about it now. But w did this exceed meet your expectations? Did it give you things that you didn't think it was going to do, or did it kind of deliver exactly what you thought it was? You know, I I thought that the reaction to this movie was like very weirdly positive, and I think in part it was it's kind of a I think a little bit of an overcorrection because people were expecting this to be absolutely awful, but it ended up being like, okay to decent. And so that's kind of where I sit with it. It was, it was okay. Um, you use the term Marvelification in our doc last week. And that's kind of how I would describe this. Um, I feel as if maybe like 20% of the jokes in it landed and there, there was just like way oh, too much humor. They were and... relentless with the humor. I got annoyed yeah. with it. Like I was like, mm -hmm. can you be serious about something for a second? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, you know, it's a lot of the, the jokes too are like ripped whole cloth from like other movies or other sources. Like, you know, for instance, the, um, the paladin character played by reggie jean page he's basically drax the destroyer where he's just overly serious and he takes everything too literally and then um you also have what was the other thing um the, oh yeah the scene where the like red priestess at the end is being pummeled into the ground by the yeah owl bear. yeah literally ta that's taken whole cloth from the avengers scene where loki is being beat up by hulk at the yeah. very end of that movie and so you know, a lot of this stuff, they're just kind of picking and taking elements from other movies and sort of readapting it. It's almost as if they played like Mad Libs with the screenplay for this and everything is like interchangeable. Like you could put, you could like superimpose this film's plot onto like basically anything. But yeah. Yeah. What did you think? It, it, it does seem like they wrote this by just getting a bunch of like a D and D like streamers and having them just like do a thing with the Mad Libs. And that is how they got all of because when people are doing D and D as performance, I don't really watch it, but you can just tell that the whole point of it is to just try and make people laugh. It's, it's basically just guided comedy to a degree, mm. you know, even amongst like the most popular of it, even when they're, like trying really hard to stay in character and like do all the these and thous about it. The whole point is to just, is to make people laugh. And mm -hmm. it's a very glib and insincere thing. You know, even though I know people are very sincere about it and the end result though, is that yeah, each scene just feels inconsequential. It's just, okay. Yeah. Here's the crazy goofy thing with the special effect. And now we're going to say something funny and move on to the next thing. It was just, one like little glib trite joke after another. And that when I was really getting engaged with it, when it is just, there's just random fantasy shit going on, you know, that I could just, you know, get into, but none of these characters are really substantial and they just were you know, put in here to be self inserts for the fandom, you know, like it, and the audience of D and D is pretty young these days. Like there's a lot more, of Gen Z who are into this than even people our age, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a lot more hip than it ever, yeah. you know, which is why you could make a movie like this and not like the one from the nineties, but like, should we be grateful that it's at least, you know, passable, you know, like, like I wasn't offended by it, 
but I wouldn't call yeah. it great. I agree with you that, yeah, the, the the overwhelmingly like sort of positive like vibe about this belied how mediocre a lot of it is. Like people were mm-hmm. acting like this was the like this is like game changing, and it's like no, it's not. Like this is as boilerplate as you could get. They at least just were respectful, and that's the difference. Yeah, that's kind of that's where I think maybe the movie got things right because. See, my personal experience with D&D is almost nothing. Like so, I Zilch. D, D&D and, you know, the world of D&D is something that I've never gotten into. So, when I was watching this film, I, I felt like a lot of stuff was going over my head and I got the feeling that for the right person, this movie is just full of easter eggs. And you know, there were times when I'd be watching the movie and um hang on man there's something weird going on in my house okay sure yeah what was that jesus Sorry, okay. I've never been in my room, which is over my garage, and had the garage door open before. Oh, okay. I'm so fucking sorry. This has been no, it's okay. Way too chaotic. I'll just um, I'll just let me start that whole thought over. So yeah, my experience with D and D is basically like nothing, and so um, other than maybe a couple of the video games I've played in the past, but uh, I got the feeling that this movie is lock full of Easter eggs that I just do not understand because yeah. the camera, the camera would like linger on things for like a second too long. And I'd be like, what was that? Like, was that supposed to be something or, or, you know, they would make references. I think one of like the only references I got were when they'd be like Baldur's Gate or like Icewind Dale. And then I, I'd just be like, oh, I know what those are, but yeah. everything else is just like way over my head so i mean at least they did it they did they seem to have done right by the fans of of the property in that way and 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 i guess i you know there are certain scenes in this film that i did enjoy like i think the highlight is probably that graveyard scene where they're waking up all of the corpses and then having them like replay their last memories yeah that was the 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 most like pure part of the movie where things were just happening effortlessly and it you know, didn't feel contrived and it was just like effective you know storytelling and filmmaking speaking of who who are the directors and writers of this what are they known for well i know i can't remember the name of one of the guys but it's a it's a directing duo and one of them is uh john francis daly who um got, got his start on freaks and geeks and as an actor and he sort of transitioned into writing and they uh other than this movie they've written a bunch of comedy films like their their most popular film is game night from the early 2010s which is why this is just so quippy and, and funny you know it is because that's that, that was basically just mad lib comedy d it was just D comedy anyway yeah they, they, they have a a formula i guess are they going to yeah. be getting more are we going to be getting sequels to honor among things or can we get a whole new cast with some more interesting characters in there? 
Yeah, I hope so. Oh God. Yeah, I mean, thank God that you know one of I won't spoil it, but thank God <laughs> one of these characters we don't have to deal with anymore. But I think we are going to get more because you know the one thing about this film is it got the rare uh, Chinese release where it, it got the okay to be released in China, and it it did pretty gangbusters over there. And so I think we will get another one, but. Um, that's one of the things that I notice about, especially with fantasy movies, when they get released in China. I don't know if you are familiar with the, uh, like the, the Chinese censor censorship board that is run by the government. And um, two, two things you will never see in a fantasy film that is released in China are ghosts and skeletons. And that, those are two things that you don't see in this movie. And so, uh, just something weird I noticed. I always notice stuff like that when when movies get released in China, but um, that's why the all of the dead bodies in this in the graveyard are like you know sort of like Skyrim type like drowers instead of being just skeletons. Cause, yeah, because yeah, because of that one. If they that, are four hundred years old, they should like be less than bones. Yeah. <laughs> and you got a quick kit for us for the last season of Barry. There's a lot of shows leaving us all like right at the same time yeah. all the kino shit is leaving is this season act like i've heard some mixed things about it are those people wrong i think so yeah i think you know other than succession ending in two weeks this show will also be ending and you know with one fell swoop hbo is just gonna get rid of like two of their best shows ever and um this show it's become a monster and bill Hader is it's dr frankenstein basically and i just wanted to like you know sort of take the temperature two weeks out from the series finale and just say you know continue to gush about this show because it had a killer twist you know that is on par with the uh episode three of succession that happened earlier this season a sim uh, a similar sort of twist like that and you know, where the show is at now is I feel like it's in such a good position where, you know, the to use like an analogy, you know, the Bill Hader is he's flying the plane and the skies are clear and it's not raining and the landing gear is down and the runway is dry and all he needs to do is just land the plane and it's it's gonna just instantly become a classic in my opinion and um yeah this show it's 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 just been such a journey as far as i've talked about it on here before as as far as what this show started as and what it has turned into and yeah very much looking forward to that series finale um both of those series finales <laughs> so do you anticipate him doing something like really tom cruise-ish and like instead of just you know landing his plane you know as as easily as he you know can't like he's a professional he should just be locked in he's done this a thousand times right but no he's is he gonna do some loop de loops and like flip upside down and take the the picture of the inside of a mig cockpit just for the sake of it just to prove that he can I don't know I mean he are he actually already kind of did that with the the twist that I happened. suppose that's true yeah a couple episodes ago because. Yeah, I mean, you were alluding to it, but that that the twist um, sort of divided, I think, the the fans of this show. And I personally thought it was it was genius. But yes, I, I'm very, very much looking forward to whatever 
Bill Hader does after this show too, because he's he's reached the point now where I don't think he needs to be pigeonholed into doing comedy anymore because he he has proven that you know he can do dramatic stuff and he he has he just has such I I believe he has such a reverence for film and he seems like he really knows his shit as far as you know the stuff that he alludes to and the callbacks he makes and the homages he makes to other films you just get the sense that you know he really knows what he's talking about congratulations to him by the way for finally being able to announce his relationship with Ali Wong the other queen of streaming <laughs> right now are they going to work together that would be interesting yeah cuz she's also in a place where you know you know, she started out as a stand-up comedian and she's in a place too now where she could probably do anything she wanted as far as actual acting goes, not just stand-up comedy. So, yeah, I mean, I think the sky's the limit for both of them. Sky's the limit. That's where you want to be. That's why you give all your money to the Church of Scientology, after all. Because <laughs> the time has come to transition to the second part of our retrospective on the Mission Impossible series. We're moving into the territory where we needed a palate cleanse. We needed to hit the reset button. We needed something radical to, you know, change the paradigm for what these movies could be. Mission Impossible 2, yeah, it was the biggest movie of the year 2000. But even Tom Cruise knew that it was a dog. So how, do, how does he reboot his franchise, Matt? Yeah, you, uh, you bring in a young and hungry J.J. Abrams which this this movie being his first blockbuster he kind of does what he does best and creates a competent film with his signature non-style um but i don't think the, the the movie isn't without its moments of panache but both fortunately and unfortunately the ever loyal abrams also brings all of his friends along starting with quite possibly the two biggest blights on ip driven movies Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orki. My kings. Um, and they're, My kings. Yeah. These guys are such kings of trash. Sorry. I love them. They're here and they're doing what they do best by ruining the film with the written word, uh, as they will do in the future for Transformers, Star Trek, and The Amazing Spider-Man. Um, but uh, Abrams, he does his best to balance out their shittiness by stringing along lost composer Michael Giacchino and future Star Wars The Force Awakens cinematographer Dan Mindell. And that's kind of the defining feature of Mission Impossible 3, that it's an Abrams movie through and through, because you have the cold opens, you have the mystery box MacGuffins, you have the turncoats in the 11th hour, but perhaps the best part of this film is when the director tries something new. And in this case, it's the first and only time he ever worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman, whose every moment on the screen magnetizes your eyes to the TV. And so all in all, it's kind of a mixed bag of a film, but it's a, the necessary one that we needed to get the series to the entries that are to come in the future. So that's kind of my initial thoughts. But yeah, Chuck, what did you think about Mission Impossible 3? I was completely taken aback. Actually, I, I was brought back, rather, to when I saw this movie in the Mott Playhouse Theater. To Because, like, I'm coming in as a fan of, legitimately as a fan 
of Mission Impossible 2 at this point in my life. And I hadn't quite gotten into Lost yet, but I had watched a fuck ton of Felicity and Alias. So, like, that's the kind of J.J. Abrams, you know, fan I was. So I was excited for it. But to have that that opening count to ten cold open in media res, you're just you're literally just being told, oh, yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman is the most like evil motherfucker ever. Like he might be the best villain in this whole series. His performance is just so fucking powerful and and just I don't know. Every single thing he does, like every little expression on his face, like in between his lines, which are so, so terse and monotone, but his, like his eyes just burn into your soul. And I don't know the writing that they gave him, like he got the best lines that, that yeah. like that everything about like when he's getting interrogated and he's like, what's your name? What's your name? Like, he's just trying to like goad the interrogator to giving something up about himself. I don't know. Like, there's just such a a cold, calculating, evil logic to everything that that character did in this movie, and it's partially why it overcomes all the hokiness that Orky and Kurtzman bring to the table, and and that, and I don't know the the there was just so many sequences in this that took me aback because I, I just didn't recall them being so fucking like bleak and like yeah. you know stark and like downright like oh shit like that that slow motion shot of the helicopter coming up over the bridge and you just see those guys those like SWAT guys with their helmets on and their fucking machine guns and and uh, and Ethan Hunt hasn't seen them yet he's just getting oriented after having his vehicle roll you know because there's a, a drone shooting missiles at the fucking bridge and shit and you can just see the the realization come across his face, even though he hasn't seen it yet. He knows he can hear the helicopter, and that just like made my stomach drop. You know, when I rewatched this, and it's not often that like an old movie that I'm familiar with really has an impact like that. You know, like like it felt like I was seeing it for the first time again. Like I had forgotten, you know, like some of the power that this movie had. But that said. There's a lot of this that you could tell was chintzy and was left behind as soon as they moved on to the next installment. Like, they, they tried really hard to actually give him a team this time. What did you think of those guys, those characters? I, you know, I thought they were mostly, like, forgettable. I think that, um, you know, luckily in future installments, we're finally going to get to a point where he's, you know, he's bringing people over from, like, the previous films and he finally gets to a point where he actually has a team that he's he's bringing from film to film but this team was not it because i don't know i i remember like i don't know why uh maggie q was ever a thing i don't she's not a good actress i don't think and i i don't know like the whole thing that they tried to do by giving her like the like 10 seconds of character development she got where she's like saying the prayer in that car yeah. um, when, they're, when they're waiting for Ethan Hunt to jump off out of the skyscraper. That was just lame. And, and then, yeah, Jonathan uh, Reese Myers, I don't know. He's, he's pretty forgettable. He's sort of, you know, the, he's the wise cracking helicopter pilot from uh, number two, the, the like Australian guy. He's just like that insert character. And I think Cruz, because, you know, at this point, Cruz is, like, full-on, like, 
you know, never mind who the director is, never mind who any of the producers are. This is at this point Cruz's franchise, and I think he knew who to bring over from this movie into the other ones, which in this case is um, Michelle Monaghan and uh, Simon Pegg. Yeah, they were the, the most pleasant additions, even though apparently when they were making this, um, Simon Pegg was in a deep, dark time in his life. And it was because he was exposed to Tom Cruise that he broke his al his you know his alcoholism, you know, based on some research I did. And I don't know why that was a part of it, but the that the, the that insipid little you know group though, like Jonathan Rhys Myers, at that point in his career, was on like what was it called again, The Tudors, and yeah. and you would expect that he would have gotten more juice from this movie but yeah there wasn't room for anyone else to grow though there's one tall poppy in this field you know and it, it, his name is tom cruise and there's you and there's and that's why so many other of these other like quote-unquote stars like carrie russell show up just to have like a really brutal death just to like make you think that anything is possible yeah because they, they just needed because eventually because at the end of the movie ethan hunt has that same thing in him and if there's a testament to what this movie brings to the table, it's back to having a plan, having it go really fucking wrong, and then having to improvise to try and solve this the situation and still save humanity and the woman you love and, you know, somehow get out of Hong Kong and, you know, all, all in one piece. And he finds a way to do it. And it was all seemingly you know, really practical. Even like Davian, like on the bridge escape, the, the gadgetry that they put in this. Do you think there's actually foam that you can spray on like like layered steel that could like make it brittle enough that you could just like break it with a crowbar? I don't know, but in Mission Possible world, it exists. It's that bleeding edge. And I just I appreciated that kind of stuff. But then it's still at the same time very grounded and practical. It wouldn't be a Mission Impossible as Cruz was like running up a wall with a cable and then gliding down so he can do the mission impossible stop but he uses a laser to to measure the the amount of distance he has exactly so that i don't know that that just seems like that's real technology it's probably something the navy seals use but i don't know i i, I enjoyed that aspect of it because it the the gadgetry can either be real nonsensical or just be like something that you why why doesn't this exist i don't know why there's a random picture of the fucking avengers <laughs> in between the clips but it's there yeah the the gadgetry you know it, it after you know the bonkersness of mission impossible 2 you know it's taking a step back into the real world sort of as as is abrams want to do but um yeah i i, I agree it's a lot of it's really cool i think in this movie the ambition of the mask scenes has finally caught up with the technology because that first mask scene when uh, Hunt dresses up like Davian it is so well done. I mean, you can tell that they're blending CGI and actual practical effects there, but it's so well done how the camera is rotating around and they're hiding, they're hiding the cuts behind like Ving Rhames is back essentially when the camera mm -hmm. goes behind Ving Rhames is back. And that's where they're hiding the cuts between when it Tom Cruise becomes Philip Seymour Hoffman. And yeah, very, very, uh, one of the better, you know, mask scenes. And then of course you have, yeah, like, as you said, the, 
the brain uh, bomb, which that scene is so fucked up. Like I, I remember, I, you know, talking about, I was talking last week about scenes that sort of disturbed me from the <laughs> second movie. Well, that, that's, that scene disturbed me in this one. I just remember uh, seeing that in theaters also, and just thinking that was so like, just fucked, like absolutely messed up. And um, yeah, very, very cool though. I mean, uh, very uh, memorable. It balanced I'll always have out, that, yeah. I'll always have that image of like Carrie Russell's eye going like all lazy when it happens. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, it's fu- yeah, and that really fucked me up as a fan of Felicity, man, because I was like, oh shit, my girl's in a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, she's probably going to be really important to it. Nah, she's just going to like die instantly, you know, and then <laughs> just be not, not in the movie at all anymore. Shout out to the other dude from Felicity who plays Scott Speedman's roommate. He was. He also was in Star Wars: A New Hope. He was like a X-wing, not a New Hope, uh, for Force Awakens. He was like a pilot for like a, a single shot. Of, uh, Greg Grunberg is that his name? Uh, I think so. That's the guy who's in like every J.J. Abrams uh, property. Yeah, he was Alias. Yeah, and he was. Yeah, yeah, he was the pilot in Lost. Yeah, yep. he's the guy yep. that gets killed by the smoke monster in the pilot. Yeah, it, yeah. He for some reason is his like lucky charm. And he'll just always be brought along. Um, but at the... God, but, but I appreciated the cameos until it was just like, oh, why is baby Aaron Paul here? What is he bringing to the equation? I guess he's just... I mean, he, he looked the part for the, like, loser younger brother of Michelle Monaghan, who, uh, who, you know, literally... He answers the phone... When Ethan calls him, it's like, I don't know where she is, you know, type thing. And uh, that that was funny. I, I really like seeing that because you could see in, in that, you know, that scene especially, you could see where they would cast him as like a strung out meth head. Yeah, because this is two years before you can see he still has a skinny child's face still, even though I'm sure he's a grown man at that point. But he, he definitely looked older when he did Breaking Bad. The I just want to shout out the cinematography in this though. I yeah. there was parts of this where I was like, holy fuck, they did this before the Dark Knight. They did this before. All, like I just didn't appreciate it for, for what it was when I saw it at the time. Because it, it, returning to it, I was taken aback by the the scope of its visuals on that sequence in particular. Like it, th- there was just some of those shots I just don't remember being as awesome when I saw it in the theater. As you know, when I was 16 years old, but I would love to have seen the seen this on a big screen again because it deserves it. It looks spectacular, but then yeah, it gets is, it well, gets really corny. It gets really corny sometimes, though. It, it, it yeah. balances itself out. <laughs> this is before Abrams got the hankering to put lens flares on every single oh. like shot, and um, but yeah, I, I would agree with you. Yeah, cinematography is great, and you know that that one shot that is literally in every single piece of marketing material for this movie is when Ethan Hunt is running on the bridge and gets blown against the car by the the missile from the helicopter and I just I had that image is like seared into my mind because they they were so proud of that effect <laughs> when when they were marketing the movie but it is cool I mean it is it is very cool and um but what wasn't like, cool like is there an abramsism that was in this movie that you didn't appreciate uh, you know, the whole, the whole rabbit's foot thing is stupid. And it's like, 
it's especially because you can tell that they thought it it would be a cool thing if they never revealed what it was but it actually it just comes off as lazy you know typical abrams mystery box bullshit where you know it's not it's not cool that you didn't explain it it's just lazy like yeah. that's all it is yeah because like that's why the only reason jj abrams has the cachet around his use of the mystery box is because it fueled an industry it gave like online writers about you know properties like his something to do lost employed a lot of people you know the you know dissecting and prognosticating about what could be in the box you know like but that's that whole gimmick still exists like i found an article from screen rant written two years ago you know that was about like what is the rabbit's foot you know is which is all this clickbait because the answer is there it could be like five dozen different things but one of those things is cool but we're just going to have it be described really really vague so it could be oh something as lame as a virus which has already been done we already did that in the last movie so why not be a little bit more concrete so it's not just you know some nebulous nothing like the, the rabbit's foot could literally just be a gag it could be a lie you know, and that be that would have been maybe more interesting, is that it, like it's just like an empty capsule, it's just something to keep terrorists busy. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it could all just be a wild goose chase. That would have been more interesting than just you know leaving us with our own imaginations. Yeah, it, it yeah. But other than that, I was really annoyed with how many times Abrams would needle drop in a sequence. That party sequence, you would have a scene. <laughs> Of like people talking, they would play one random '60s pop staple, and then cut to another part of the night. Other people are talking, and a different song is playing, and like it was the entire soundtrack to like the fa Father of the Bride before we actually get to the Billy Crudup introduction and the movie actually gets going. It like why why is he like this? Why is J.J. Abrams <laughs> like this? Yeah, that I don't, I don't know. That was that was very strange. That whole party scene. I mean, I get why it's there because you're trying to show, you know, Ethan Hunt has moved on and he's living a normal life. But that scene, more than any other scene in this movie, really sticks out as like the scene from the year 2006 between the music and just the way that people are dressed, all that 2006 like fashion yeah. and. The conversations they're having and stuff i don't know it's just that 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 scene really like hit me in like the nostalgia funny bone more than any other scene in this movie because yeah otherwise it has a very timeless feel honestly it and, does. and giacchino's yeah. score really serves the movie well especially the intro take is just so like th like thrumming and just driving forward more than any other version of it like that, that intro sequence is delightfully short, honestly, because it's just the actors' names while they have all these lights. Like, I don't know, I liked the effect of the, the lights casting on the, the bold red text, but it's yeah. just like the, the names of the main cast, the name of the movie, and then boom, you're just like in the, the, the thrust of it after that like really, really awesome, you know, countdown to start the movie off. But why didn't Cruz have abrams come back was abrams just beyond it at this point like like why didn't he even like, like was it just not an option maybe 
Yeah, that's. I think you're correct. I, I heard somewhere that the only director that's ever worked on Mission Impossible that wasn't asked to return for a sequel was um was uh oh god why am i blanking his name uh the guy who just did the last one mccory two no no who no no who did uh two mission impossible two oh john woo john woo john woo was the only director of any mission impossible film that wasn't asked to come back and do another one and other than that everybody every other director was which includes Abrams, and I just I get the feeling that by the time the fourth one, you know, started pre-production, which probably would have been around, you know, early 2010, Abrams had already like rocketed into the stratosphere. He was already working on Star Trek, and so he was. I think he was long past it. That's too bad. But anyway, this movie was his like audition for everything that he did after it, though. You like, he, oh, like yeah. it's it's it 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 really. It's why he did Star Trek. It's why he did Star Wars, ultimately. It's how he proved that he could make Super 8. But, because yeah. not, not a lot of other filmmakers, as we'll find, were able to take their their time in the Mission Impossible director's chair and do something with it afterwards. You know, even though they, they might have deserved it. But I guess we'll get to that in a little bit. Do you have anything else to say about Mission Impossible 3? I just wanted to comment on, you know, to, to speak a little bit about the ending of the movie or sort of the final scenes. Um, the, like, final set piece strikes me as being, like, very small scale, almost as if they, like, ran out of budget or something. Mm. It almost seems, like, anticlimactic. And, you know, they, they set it in, like, the inside of, like, those, you know, Chinese, like, shanty townhouses. And... Um, it, it, you know, they were clearly on like a soundstage too. You could totally tell. And then, you know, they kill off Davian so suddenly, you know, by getting hit by that car. And I don't know, it was just like very, like almost comical in how sudden everything was and how small scale it was. Um, and then, it, and then it turned absolutely ludicrous when, you know, Michelle Monaghan resuscitates um <laughs> yeah. tom cruise with with like open wiring or open like an open electrical current i don't know that was very very it gets a little gonzo um for my taste you know especially after you you know you had mentioned how realistic abrams is compared to john woo and yeah just it gets a little gonzo and and that's kind of where like i would call it hokey as well because there are some awful awful lines in this like I, even though I was you know lauding the sequence for its like technical brilliance and like real world applicability, but then you have Tom Cruise up yeah because he uses this cable to run up a wall, and then he uses a tiny printer to print a photo of because they can't hack the the cab security camera, so they print a picture of what it would see so that they don't question that the you know they don't so they don't see him doing his thing. And then he just drops the line, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the movie, they have this, like, bit of, like, meta awareness that, I just, like, it seems strange for a Tom Cruise movie. Because you don't actually hear a character say the words impossible mission force in the first two movies. 
but then Michelle Monaghan and him are like all beat up. They're they're survived. They're getting ready to you know go on to their lives, and she says, like, what well, what's going on? Like, who are you? And he's like, well, I, I work for an agency. What agency? The Impossible Mission Force. What the fuck? That's its name, and it's and it just made me laugh because it it seems bizarrely placed it for this movie, but then again, that maybe that is exactly what you know an Abrams movie would do. I don't know. Like, the, the, what did you think of that? Did that feel goofy to you? Yeah, it was definitely goofy, and yeah, a little bit fourth wall breaking, and yeah, the there are there are moments there are multiple moments like that in the movie where you're just you just kind of have to shake your head and your hands at the the lines but um yeah i mean the last thing i guess i'll say about it you know speaking of the the actual ending is i think it's incredibly obvious that this was planned as the final mission impossible film just because yeah. of how it wraps up you know you're giving ethan hunt the the you know walking off into the sunset ending you know living a normal life but i think the only reason we got more is because this movie like just did absolute bonkers like business i i i genuinely think they thought they were on the downturn for this series and they you know they they figured you know we might as well put one more out you know and make a make a cool hundred mil but they ended up, you know, just doing absolute gangbusters. And I think that's the only reason why we even ever got a fourth one. No, I think you're right. Because it's it, it, it elevated what was possible for a movie of its budget of, you know, for a property that wasn't based on a comic book or a video game or like some fantasy series. Because that's what the rest of Hollywood was really leaning into, which is maybe why he thought, OK, yeah, th this is beyond me. I have to start thinking about, you know, being in the the dark, you know, Universal Monster Movie universe or something like that. But instead, he was shown no, there's still some juice left in the in this old horse, and he took it up for another run, and that other run was with Brad Bird. In 2011, and Ghost Protocol, as it is titled, it's like it's you either call this you know Mission Impossible Four. Ghost Protocol or just Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. And in this film, it takes what J.J. Abrams, you know, showed could be possible, but it, it does it in a way that is a lot more homogenized. It's a lot more streamlined. But it, at the same time, it, it, it ignores a lot of the things that made Mission Impossible 3 really awesome. Like it's really impactful and indelible villain. The villain in this might as well not even be in the fucking movie. You know, it's 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 kind of strange. It's a strange movie because it has such great set pieces. It has such a a driving narrative. But Michael Nyquist, the late great Michael Nyquist is utterly wasted in this role. And it's it's hard to say who is like even causing anything to happen in this particular story because in the last one we had like another vague devious arms dealer you know playing with armageddon and in this one we just have some russian bureaucrat scientist who you know like a lot of other rich elite people believes the only way to save humanity is to wipe out as much of it as possible he just wants to do it with nuclear weapons and you know that's not really 
this is this is the movie that proved that Mission Impossible could work even when nothing happening on screen really matters. You know, in this like the story is literally meaningless. What matters is what are the actors doing? Does it look awesome? And you know, is it fun watching them do these things? And it answers yes to all of those questions. So it doesn't matter that the villain is milk toast and you know, basically thin air. You know, it, it doesn't matter that this is just Tom Cruise running a lot and saving the world. You know, and showing you that you can save the world just by running really fast and you know getting the shit kicked out of you along the way, but still finding a way to you know stop San Francisco from being reduced to radioactive ash. And while this might not be the best Mission Possible movie, I will say for the record, I really like three a lot more than this. But in watching this oh, okay. this pair together, I was really I remembered what I was taken by it for. It's a really charming Mission Impossible movie. It doesn't go too dark. It doesn't go too sleazy. This is the most family friendly one of the bunch. You don't have Philip Seymour Hoffman traumatizing people. You don't have like really fucked up deaths in this. This is this is the one for like for the kids when they're old enough. Like I was not old enough to watch those first two Mission Impossible movies, probably. You know, as far as my emotional maturity level, but you could probably safely put this on for some pretty young kids and not get too worried about it. And because I have to look at it through that lens, because sometimes I have to have a toddler in the room with me, and I can't exactly, you know, like rewatch Men anytime soon, you know, and have her be a, you know present. And Tom Cruise kind of nails it. Brad Bird. You know, this was his live action debut after doing The Incredibles and Ratatouille. And it just like and it kind of, you know, you know, was also kind of this is a franchise for a filmmaker to show who they are. J.J. Abrams did it. John Woo did it in his own way. We, he was already like baked. We already knew who John Woo was. But getting to see what a good filmmaker could do with a, a set of toys like this franchise with this star you you have you know jeremy renner in that supporting cast you have paula Patton, who brings really nothing to the table but it all kind of works in spite of the fact that i feel like there's other movies in this franchise that have better qualities this is like the most mid of them but i'm not offended if it's you know on the tv i'd sit down and watch it what do you think of this one yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, I think this one sort of brings the fun back into the equation. I think that's kind of, I mean, I don't know what someone would expect from a like Pixar animation director. That's probably you know, Brad, Brad Bird's sort of um, experience coming into play there. It brings the fun back, brings a little bit of the lightheartedness back. Um, and yeah, this is what I really remember this one as being is the first one of these films that made the like the Tom Cruise stunt a major part of its marketing like big time and they they were putting the you know the Burj Khalifa stuff everywhere like it was everywhere and you know they were putting pictures out of Tom Cruise sitting on the very very tip top of the Burj Khalifa and and they were putting out like behind the scenes videos and now they do that for every single one of these movies and it's like an integral part of the marketing campaign and 
So um, I think, you know, that was, that's a, that was a good direction to go because, you know, that sequence, that Burj Khalifa sequence Incredible. is among, yeah, like one of the best, if not the best, like action set piece in any of these films. And yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's, it's really fun and a lot of, just a lot of very memorable moments that you can sort of pick out and say, I like that moment. I like that moment. I like that moment. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I stand on it. Yeah. It's, it's probably the best at being a mission impossible movie out of all of them, because it just, mm -hmm. it gets things, you know, pretty dang close to great throughout it. And other things are, the other aspects of it are fucking incredible. Um, Cause we still got Michael, giacchino back to do the music and i, I think that that helps it because at this point he's at the height of his powers he's not as like wedded to lost he's stretched his legs a little bit more in other projects and i don't know like i i just yeah even though like a lot of these you know like familiar faces that pop up are kind of thankless like ving rames is in this just for this that one little part so he can <laughs> you know you know drink a beer and then pat him on the back and just pimp away. Like he did, he was so, he was out of that shot so quick. I'm pretty sure he only had one take, but otherwise I was very happy to have Simon Pegg back and more involved. You know, that, that whole hallway sequence with that gadget was fun, but you talk about the Burj Khalifa product placement, the iPad product placement was on another level. Oh, Cause yeah, yeah this was, yeah, as that's... you noted, this was when they were, were first rolled out. Yeah, the iPad with the, you know, making it like basically an integral part of that whole wall uh, device. And it, yeah, it's so distracting because it's like a it's like a Gen 1, you know, iPad that it's giant and it's got the giant case on it and that like weird worm camera. And it's just it looks it it's one of the few things in this movie that really doesn't hold up because the second you see that ipad you're you can it instantly puts a date on the movie and that date is 2011 <laughs> i know exactly where i was i was working at target telling yeah. those ipads to to folk stringing them onto you know three you know, g contracts with at&t and verizon just for the the extra attachments so i could get myself <laughs> a a thing so i could go see a movie and not have to pay yeah i would get snacks if I sold enough attachments so that I could go to movies and not have to, you know, buy, you know, your concession stand prices. But what do you make of, um, what do you make of the cold open for this one? Because this, they do the cold open thing again, the scene with, uh, lost Josh Holloway. Yeah. Cause and this so is still a bad robot movie. This is still a bad robot production, which is why yeah. he's there. And it just made me so fucking sad that that guy didn't get to be something. Cause you, you get such a glimpse of the, the action star he could have been in this, that whole stunt with him jumping out of the building and then having the, the, the cushion inflate just at the right moment to stop him from dying. I thought that was pretty neat. You know, that, that was a cool sequence. And then he just gets murked by Leah Sadu. Like, are you, are you kidding me, man? Like, and even though in the, the doc you brought up blue is the warmest color, this predates that movie actually. This is actually the Oh really? Yeah, this okay. is the this is her debut in a way uh, as far as American audiences are concerned from what I know. 
but yeah, I just yeah. and I I forgot that she was in this because, but I remember thinking that, you know, looking back on it, my my thought when I saw this was, yeah, that that French chick is really hot. I wonder, like, 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 like why is she here? Because like she doesn't really do much beyond that that like whole like mirrored exchange with the diamonds. She's like otherwise. Yeah, she just gets chucked out a fucking window. She gets thrown off the Burj Khalifa. And does anyone notice? Like, where where are the authorities? Like, like isn't her body just like smeared on the sidewalk somewhere? Like, like who's looking into this? Like, how often does this happen? <laughs> yeah, that that that's a good question. But yeah, she's like, I I have you know a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent convinced that she was chosen for this role strictly because of the resting bitch face she yes. has where she just you know she looks with she stares daggers with those bangs you know those blonde bangs and you know she just looks like evil she looks like a evil like um you know femme fatale hitman and uh yeah that she she's great she makes the most out of her her very small amount of screen time like you know a lot of people in the film and except for michael nyquist of course oh god that poor motherfucker like like because when did he die that was it was long after this movie but i having seen him yeah yeah but having seen him in those first like the the swedish original um uh, uh men who hate women girl with the dragon tattoo adaptations i expected a lot more from his name being in the credits for this like what happened with the writing there like did they just not try like what were they focused on when they wrote this movie well i mean it, i think it's just it's kind of like you said where he is the bad guy but he's not in a lot of the scenes because the the imf team they're constantly like one step behind him in the movie because all this movie is is him collecting all the necessary stuff he needs to launch a nuke and so you know he he's first he has to get the codes and then he has to get the the suitcase computer and then he has to get the satellite and so they're constantly like one step behind him so he's never actually in any of the scenes with them until like you know the the brief scene when he it reveals that it was him with the mask on in uh dubai and then at the very end when you know him and tom cruise have their their fight at that car vending machine thing and that was pretty is, fun that was a fun sequence it is but... pretty cool yeah and the one cool thing he does is the part when he kills himself to to make it so that you know hunt can't get his hands on the on the suitcase thing that is that is pretty cool but yeah it was sort of too little too late where you know he he just kind of dies after that and and that's it what was your reaction to the mission accomplished <laughs> but yeah that was that was pretty awful i mean i think it it had a good payoff in that um you know the payoff was good where, where luther is talking with him at the very end and he's like you actually said that <laughs> you said that you know that's a pretty good payoff for that but yeah when it happened it was it was pretty bad pretty corny it is what it is though because yeah the, some things worked really really well but then a lot of what you know some of the, the the flavor characters had to do like tom wilkinson why were you in this movie dude 
like what the hell like like a lot of this shit it looked like they they did it over a weekend you you think that there, a writer strike had been going on like it, it, there's so much missing from this movie but yeah well, it's it's part of their it's part of the series sort of tradition in like bringing in like these top tier actors to play like the IMF like uh like top brass like you know Lawrence Fishburne, Tom Wilkinson, uh Henry Cerny and they they are usually reduced to like one or two scenes and then they're Anthony like Hopkins. never heard from. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins, yeah. They're never heard from again. And so, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's part of these these movies attempt at sort of, you know, making some sort of cohesive cast that you know comes from movie to movie to movie which they really don't figure out until the end of this movie when you finally have you know um people that you're gonna you know bring over into the next movies and i mean even in this movie you know paula Patton is never heard from again jeremy renner is never heard from again even though it's like strongly strongly implied that they were gonna be in the next movie with that like cell phone scene at the end where he gives them all cell phones and yeah it's very strange did you think that that reveal at the end like well worked you know as far as like was that a good emotional payoff for like renner to be like i'm the reason why your wife is dead is she dead I don't know, like that whole part, just like I forgot how cornball and ridiculous it was. Seeing Michelle Monaghan going out with her, like you know, like you, you I assume gay black, you know, you know, nurse coworker, <laughs> out for some you know, you know, you know, margaritas on you know after almost getting vaporized, because yeah, the, the the nuke just misses like that tower in San Francisco, I forget what it's called, or like it hits it, lands in San Francisco Bay, and they just go there to hang out and just be like, yeah, man, everyone almost fucking bit the dust here, including my wife, you know, who I'm like trying to keep safe by having her not be involved with me. But when you know it, me not be, being able to stop this plan at plan, you know, at stage A of the process, would have saved her life. I had to be at the very last fucking second. Like she is not safe anywhere is you know, on this planet earth. You know what I mean? Like apparently mission impossible land is the most unsafe version of this world that could ever exist. Cause the apocalypse seemingly happens almost every other day, but Ethan hunt is the only reason why it doesn't happen. Does this franchise continue on after we see dead reckoning? Do you think, does he hand this off the mantle off or is it just over done with mission impossible will never be made again? You know, I, I do. They have said that, you know, dead reckoning part one and two are going to be the final movies. And I do, I really do hope they make good on that. I mean, let, let's face it. Tom Cruise is getting too old. Like he is, I think his age is finally starting to catch up with them. Cause you see, you know, I've seen recent like red carpet photos of him and he is actually starting to look his age. And I just really hope he doesn't pull. I don't know if you heard about this in the past, you know, week or so, but fucking Vin Diesel is out there now saying that the Fast and the Furious movies are going to go to, to number 
12 now even though they were only supposed to go to number 11 they're now going to go to number 12 yeah and so they told me that they I, wanted I a really, trilogy yeah i just really hope that you know he he you know realizes that he needs to just he needs to stop all good things must come to an end like yeah, we shouldn't get another top gun we really wish we weren't getting more indiana jones so yeah spare everyone especially yourself because we got these movies these movies are good that's the thing like like these two movies that we talked about today both of them you know just you know carried forward a level of quality that you know you really you know you know is you know lost in a lot of other franchises the the commitment to making something really really good is you know a hard to come by it you know when they a lot of the time there's contempt for the audience we can at least trust a man like tom cruise to want to entertain you and to give you something exciting you know and you can you could just you since he's the producer on these it's like his name is you know at the top of you know the headline you know in every way but like was paula wagner i didn't remember was she still associated with this no no this is the movie where um her and cruz dissolved their studio uh paula or it was uh cruz wagner productions and tom cruise renamed his studio just tom cruise Productions. oh my god uh, and what that's a the guy. first that's the very very first thing it, during the uh the intro credits in this one that's the very first thing you see where it says a tom cruise production and it's like oh man he's just dispensing with any sort of um you know social graces or any sort of humility he has and he's just putting himself fully out there now jeez louise what a motherfucker but that's why we love him and that's why like i think we commented on this it's like the, the first two movies i saw on vhs and these two films i saw in theaters which is you know part of what the you know the power that they you know, ultimately had and these next two i saw on streaming i just think that's interesting that these different eras of this franchise were you know, delivered in in that way initially mm-hmm. because that's how long the yeah. thing has been going yeah yeah, it's like what 20 uh 25 years now or more than that 30 years almost japers yeah yeah, yeah jesus what's your mentionable but, uh, for or do you before we move on do you have something else you want to well, say i was just gonna i was just gonna say you know going into these final two five and six that we're gonna do next week um in the, the my idea going into these final two is that you know these are the best of the best in my opinion and i'm i'm really excited to revisit these ones now because i I've, I've only seen each of them because they're the most recent ones i've only seen them each one time mm. and so but in, from what i remember they're incredible and so I'm, I'm curious to see how that idea holds up but then the the final thing i wanted to mention was if anybody didn't see we got a new trailer for Dead Reckoning this week. Yes, we and did. And it was pretty spectacular. So, yeah, go out and watch that because, you know, just kind of by coincidence, you know, while we're doing this series, we just got a new trailer for, for that movie. And, and um, yeah, we will see kind of where this goes. Looking forward to that. What was – oh, actually, there is one thing I wanted to bring up before we moved on. What the yeah. fuck happened to Brad Bird? <laughs> yeah i have no idea because uh 
Yeah, I, I was, I, you know, was thinking about that, that while, while I was writing down my notes for this, this movie and he hasn't done anything since Incredibles 2 in 2018. And I was under the impression that he had been canceled for some reason. He had been me too'd, but that was actually a uh, fellow Pixar alum, John Lasseter. And so I don't know if he just got really burnt out after um, Incredibles 2 or what, but yeah, he hasn't done anything in about five years. Really strange, because he got what was that other fucking? He did that one dog of a movie with George Clooney, I believe. What was Tomorrowland? Tomorrowland, and that didn't really help his career too much. And no, and I don't, I don't know. I watched The Incredibles too, but it, it just wasn't. It was kind of a misstep, in my opinion. I wish he hadn't made it in retrospect. Yeah. But what is your mentionable for this week? Yeah, so my mentionable is, um, I don't know if you ever watch this program. I mostly just watch clips from it on YouTube, which you can go do right now. But uh, CBS Sunday Morning, uh, the, the sort of news magazine um, on CBS, they did a profile with Jeremy Strong. And this is really, really good. It's only about nine minutes long. It's all, it's all up on YouTube. You can go watch it right now. And... I, I really sort of gained a lot of respect for the guy watching this because he's not a Nepo baby. He's not somebody who comes from money. His parents didn't buy his way into Hollywood for him. He's from a like working class Boston neighborhood and he just worked his way up basically in, in Hollywood from the stage to the screen and then so on and so forth. And um, he... The, the most interesting thing about this interview is the interviewer asks him, you know, like, how, how do you get to the dark places you go for Kendall Roy? You know, how do you pull all of that hatred you have for your father? And he's basically just like, I don't know. I love my dad and I have a great relationship with my dad. And, the, and then they, they, I think they interview him and his dad together and they seem like they have like the most like the best father-son relationship ever. And huh. so it's just interesting. It's very interesting to note that. And, you know, he gets a lot of, he's gotten a lot of shit lately for being a method actor. And I guess- And for using words that, like dramaturgically or whatever. I can't say it right. Yeah. A lot of people and, made fun of him for that. Yeah. And I, I guess my sort of, my sort of advice to people would just be to lay the fuck off because he's- He's good at what he does and you know the guy is just committed to his craft and he's not he's not like out there like hurting anyone like idiots like Jared Leto like yeah. mailing people use condoms and stuff so yeah I mean he I have so much respect for the guy and um yeah very curious to see another person who I want to see where his career goes you know his his most famous role is about to end. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. All doors could open for the guy and he, you would deserve it. You know, you, you, you love to hear it. Cause there's so many names I come across these days where I'm just like, uh, it's a Nepo baby. Like, like I, I instantly just get, you know, some thoughts in my head, you know, some presuppositions about what I'm about to see or question the quality of it before I've really even had a chance to look at it because it's kind of like why I respect Malia Obama hiding her involvement with beef because I would have had a very different perception of it had I known she was working on it, which is, you know, yeah. a failing on my part, you know, which is why I feel like I enjoyed it all the more, even after finding out, 
because it's like, well, okay, I'm impressed. You know, it's it's kind of like how J.K. Rowling would write under a pen name to do her mm-hmm. non Harry Potter shit, so she can just be like, see shit, lords, I'm for real. You know, like I I, I can appreciate you know that kind of courage, um, which is you know kind of weird of me to be bringing up politics into this, but I spent a lot of time this week reading a 300 page report you know from the john durham the special investigator council whatever the fuck he was and all i'm gonna really say is i was right motherfuckers i was right about some things but i'll leave it at that you know because it's unfortunate that so much of my life was consumed by the topic of this document so i bring it up in a way as to like throw it on the bonfire and move the fuck on with my life because, yeah, I spent way too much time reading Hillary Clinton's emails. And the last one that I am ever going to read was in this report, which is me closing my little circle from a time in my life when I was pretty terminally online. What was your pick of the week? Oh, you know, I, um, I'll i say Ghost Protocol, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, because I think it's probably the one that probably deserves the most second look at i i i think i was pretty um i was pretty set in stone on my opinions of mission impossible one and two and for the most part three but i I think number four is the one that i'm going to do a little bit of an about face on and when we once we finish all six we'll have to rank them as we see fit but um i i feel as if my my list is going to get a little jumbled now see mine definitely got a little jumbled too because i came in way higher on mission on ghost protocol but i'm going to recommend mission impossible 3 because i did my about face for that movie i feel very differently about it i feel almost like it's jj abrams best movie like i i don't know i i have a lot of thoughts and i'm probably going to watch it again because I just miss Philip Seymour Hoffman. And everyone should just go appreciate what that man gave us with this, with that movie. Watch the, I, I recommend Mission Impossible 3 for the villain, if nothing else. Uh, next week, we're going to be doing um, Mission Impossible 5 and 6. What are their subtitles again? It's Rogue Nation and Fallout. And uh, Fallout. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're all on Paramount+. Plus. Watch along with us. Angie is so fucking sick of me watching Mission Impossible movies, <laughs> but she made makes me watch Twilight out of order. So it's a fair compromise, in my opinion. Thank you all for watching. Uh, have a really good week, everybody. Yeah. See ya.